everybody, and welcome back to the Chaluminati Podcast episode. Ooh, it's one twenty-four and one twenty-five. Ooh, baby, one twenty-four. Yes, man. One twenty-five. Last episode was a mini oh, compilation because we were doing the live show. Boy. I'm gonna have yeah. to update my project file now. Thank oh, you, everyone God. who came to the live show. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. That thank was, you, guys. That was insane. It was like going back to 2019 for two nights. That was and insane. our bodies, or at least mine, was not prepared for a week like that. Yet. No, no. <laughs> my body is like, still crying. We're all guys, still crying. I don't know what you guys got up to. Crazy stuff. I was doing crazy great stuff until my I sunglasses myself. got stolen. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Shout oh, out to downtown sucks. LA, baby. Yeah. <laughs> that was the worst way to end the show on that particular I night. I feel like oh, we well. met the guy. I feel like we talked to the man who did it for like he a He came back minutes. to the scene of the crime to check out his victim. Why would he come over and tell us that he was ch- chasing the guy down and that he was going to call us back if he caught him? That doesn't even make sense. It's just Shout so out weird. to that guy. Yeah. Just in case he's a listener. Shout outs to him. <laughs> that guy and his <laughs> dog. Just, bless uh yeah thank you guys for the live show that was so fucking fun it was such a good time over at uh in in la we'll be doing more live shows in the future so just keep your ears and eyes peeled for that stuff oh yes but the one thing we're doing this very moment that never ends yes is what Uh, alex that's right we are doing the show the story <laughs> I was I was trying to pitch we you to Patreon. I know, I know, I know what you're I know what you're trying oh, to okay. do. Okay, I thought you got confused because you did say it was a rough week for you, so I wasn't no, sure you was, were following. This was the a queue. great this was a great week for the me. The show Don't worry. in which we are currently doing. We are doing the show. <laughs> the Chaluminati podcast. This story begins with a dirty old house. <laughs> yeah it's but a surprise green but, stone it's, but, it's, but it's not it's not that house. It's my house this time. Sorry. That was a joke in poor taste, but in my house, on my computer, a browser is open. And on that browser, on a mysterious website, if you look at the URL and you check the URL, do you know what it says? It says patreon.com slash pod, where you can join up with us and you can help us make episodes just like this each and every week. And you can get all kinds of great free stuff in return from us that we make that we love from artists that we have now hung out with personally in real life. Thanks to experiences in our own life last week. Good vibes all around. And uh, honestly, uh, we got the best team in the biz. So come over to patreon.com slash pod. Sign up now. Keep us afloat for paltry dollars out of your pocket paltry uh, paltry dollars uh but that is what i call another joke in poor taste so now back to my dirty house in my house in the back row of a dusty bookshelf lies a book i've gone to more than once on this show for material with a particular kind of strangeness impossible to create on purpose with the knowledge and history that we have today in our own time in the year 2021 and so i must say that this my good friends are strange stories, comma, amazing facts from Reader's Digest in 1976, brought to you across time and space by my own dearly departed grandmother who ordered this book in the 70s for us to perform live today on the show. So Grandma Angie, this one's for you wherever you are. This bud is for you from uh, the Budweiser commercial. Uh, she always loved Budweiser. Anyway... Are you, are you guys ready to get into this? I have a picture. 
so much. Well, to, to, yeah. that you peeled that onion back in a way that I was not prepared for. That's what I, I have such a visual for. image of what your grandmother looked like sitting in a rocking chair with like <laughs> magazines about crazy shit all around her, but empty yeah. Budweiser can next to her with a freshly open one cracked hanging in her left hand. That was just about right. Go. She loved the Lakers. That's basically that was it's either Reader's <laughs> Digest or the Lakers. So that's you know. So shout outs to her. Uh, this first story, the, all these stories today are from Strange Stories, Amazing Facts from Reader's Digest in 1976. And then we're going to follow back up on them with new information from 2021. I was to see about how the to mystery. say, I wonder if they're like things that are very obvious by today's standards. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to imagine the way this episode was originally going to go was Alex was going to produce a bunch of old mysteries and never touch on whether they've ever been revisited or not. Just That's like, almost exactly what I was going to do, but the book was like too good at like being a real peer reviewed book. So I had to like switch up my thing at the last second to, <laughs> to deal with the fact that there was actual access to information. There was people were better informed in 1976 than I realized. Uh, anyway, this first segment is called British California. Okay. Uh, on a summer day in San Francisco, California, I take you all the way back to 1936, which at the time of writing was only 40 years ago. Uh, a story. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, which is now it's the 70s. 1981. Baby. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, like, yeah, like exactly. It's, I, oh my God, it's the eighties. Oh yes, my God. The eighties were 40 years ago. Yeah, like, if anyone, this, yeah. If anyone oh, was ever born in the 80s, the 80s, God, that'd be crazy. If you were born <laughs> was, in the 80s, wow, don't say that. That would be so was, awkward for you we, to hear this we come all, out of your we friends' were mouths. All born in the 80s. All of us in this room. If you were, I went on a, true. that'd be crazy. If you were, I went on a family trip with my with my with my family to Knott's Berry Farm the other day, and we realized that no one in the family was under 30 anymore, and we were just like, huh. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those realizations that kind of just hit randomly yeah, once you're like, all together. You want a mini donut? I was like, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So in 1936, which was 40 years before this article was written, a store clerk named Beryl Shin was out on the shore having a picnic just north of the Golden Gate Bridge when he happened to find a strange brass plate about five inches by eight inches. Uh, with a jagged hole near the bottom, covered in grime and dirt uh, under a rock nearby. Uh, and at first, he was excited. He was like, what the hell is this? I found it at, while I was at lunch. He took it home. He was going to see what he found. But by the time he got home, I guess in 1930, he had other 1936 stuff on his mind. <laughs> so he just turned on the radio shows and cooked yeah. dinner while smoking yeah. cigarettes. He tossed in the garage uh, and it sat there for eight months in his garage uh, until it was 1937. But he found it again and he was like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. And he got soap and water and he started to wash off this like ragged ass brass plate. And uh, the stuff that he read on the plate, uh, it was not it was not the foundation of a new religion. It wasn't. Dude, imagine I, for a moment. God <laughs> threw out a plan B. Yeah. Just in case Mormonism hadn't worked. He's like bronze plate yeah, and just kind of hucked that out there. No, 19- this is the brass plate. This is like plan D. This is, this oh, okay, is brass. brass plate. I thought you yeah. said bra- oh, brass. Yeah. This yeah. is like the, if, if the world is coming to a close, maybe one day somebody will find yeah. this. Yeah. Well, he washed it up and what he read on it, it was nuts enough that he ended up sending the thing to Dr. Herbert Bolton. Remember that name from UC Berkeley, I won't, uh, but I'll which try. then kicked off a crazy chain of events that reverberated throughout the ar- archaeological world. Uh, so get ready for this. Here's what it says. Uh, Jesse, if you'd be so kind to read this, I'm going to go ahead and copy paste this into the 
Zoom chat here for you. Oh, all caps. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Be it known unto all men by these presents. I think that's June. June 17th, fifteen seventy nine. By the grace of God and the name of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth of England and her successors, forever I take possession of this kingdom whose king and people freely resign their right and title in the whole land unto Her Majesty's keeping, now named by me and to be known unto all men as Nova Albion. Francis Drake. So oh, I got him. Francis the Uncharted. Drake. Uncharted begins. This is the yeah. beginning of the first game, dude. Exactly. Uh, and almost immediately, Dr. Bolton, who gets this information, makes an announcement to the California Historical Society, which went like this. This is a short one. This is for Mathis to Dr. read. His best Michael Bolton? Sense. Yeah. Yeah. You have to sing <laughs> what, it like what Michael a, Bolton. What a fantastic uh, voice he has. Yeah. No, no. This okay, is. This is uh, uh, sorry. Who, who said this? This is Dr. Herbert Bolton from Dr. UC Dr. Michael Herbert, Herbert Bolton. Bolton. All right. I feel like he just yeah. sounds like a nerd. <laughs> Here it is. Recovered at last after a lapse of three hundred and fifty seconds. This is her Dr. Herbert Bolton. That's who this is. <laughs> Everybody yes, named Herbert master. has this voice. Here after it a lapse is. of three hundred and fifty seconds. Behold, Drake's plate, the plate of brass, California's choicest archaeological treasure. The now, worst part is, is I visualize the very short, round-headed man with like a little thin mustache. You what is very that guy's clearly name? are. What is that guy's fucking name? Yes, master. Yes. What the hell is that guy's Igor? name? Yeah, but he's a person. He's a real yeah. guy. He's he's Daniel a, he's, Radcliffe yeah. from the movie. Yeah. No, yes. Igor. No, was, he somebody when his somebody gets popped and it becomes hot. Somebody who's seen a movie will know this. Anyway, we made Mathis. We we watched Mathis. We made Mathis watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So now we get. No, you made it. Yeah, I know we're about to interrupt here, but we got to watch two movies while I was with you guys. The first one on Monday when I landed, or Sunday when I landed, we watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It is a masterpiece. I agree with you. It (laughs) is ten out of ten. It is a fantastic movie. Well shot. Well paced. Uh, then we watched Jupiter Ascending as the follow-up, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. that movie is a fucking mess. <laughs> don't you great mean double feature? Perfect, great I double feature. Basically the same movie. Statues of Kane Wise. That's his name, right? Yeah. Kane oh, yeah. Wise, the lichen-tint genome-engineered. Yeah, you got it. Soul. Yeah. He was a soldier, right? Soldier that yeah. lost his wings in the after half turning wolf, on it. Half man. Half. Right, like intent. And, yeah, but, and he but, turned on his people and bit them or something. Yeah, he bit and entitled. He tried to right, bite he and bit entitled. entitled. That's what it yeah, was. And then he lost and they, st- they took his wings and his friend who has a bee and has bee DNA in him, whose name's Stinger, yeah. played by Sean Bean. He lives on Earth. And did yeah. you know? Wait, he had bee DNA in him? I did not that's I what his name was did not process yeah, oh, that. Oh yeah, you missed that. He's genome engineered. He's genome engineered with bee. Oh, I got genome engineered. All right. <laughs> Why they would be like Mila Kunis? Make him a bee. Of course. I yeah. like Mila Kunis supposed to be the main character. She just ends up being the MacGuffin going from like capture to capture while Kane Wise has to save her. Yes. All while all while people should be calling her jupe. Here's yeah. the thing. Remember, nobody does. Here's the thing. Out of the two movies we saw, one of them is a seminal work of art. And the other is the one you're talking about. I know. So just put it problem, out there. Dude. It's well, a great movie because you're still talking about it. It's hard to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind because it's real slow. Like it's yeah. a, it's basically like a what if aliens did actually come and he tried to like keep to as much of like the research at the time as possible 
about alien encounters. So it was, it was a slow build and I loved yeah. it. Meanwhile, not, Jupiter ascending is like, and then the green stone was placed under the Literally. bridge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sorry, take it away, Alex. We got to continue. We no, deviated. No worries. There. No worries. Uh, now, I know that this this plate sounds like it's like already like you heard about the plate and then you're like, oh, that's fake. But the idea that this happened is not a crazy notion, because according to what people already believe from Francis Drake's notes, Francis Drake did end up in California in 1579 while he was on the run from Spain after he like looped around South America and he was trying to escape through the Northwest Passage. So he was looking for the Northwest Passage to escape the Spanish fleet, but apparently instead he landed in California near San Francisco and uh, the local tribes, which I think were the Miwok, welcomed them as gods and freely offered them the entire Californian seaboard, which Drake proceeded to claim by like, ordering- this is a declaration of him being king? Yeah, that's literally what this this text says from this plate. Proceeded to claim the whole land by ordering a post made of brass, nailed to a stake, and dubbing it New Albion, which is exactly what he does because Albion is England, right? Uh, and while this seemed perfect, absolutely perfect at first, uh, it was the little details that were causing people problems. Okay, so first of all, the official account mentions the area where the plate was posted as having, quote, white banks and cliffs. But if you look at the shore near the Golden Gate Bridge where Mr. Shin was having his picnic, that's just not what's there. It's a totally different environment than that. And also, according to experts, while Drake did allegedly land on June 17th, like this plate says, he didn't make his deal with the Miwok until the 26th. Uh, so the date on the plate uh, like didn't really make sense. Um, so also some scientific tests revealed that the zinc content was impossibly high for something typical of that time and that it seemed to show signs of fire being used to hasten the aging process, which is often a thing they do with forgeries. And the language of the lettering used isn't completely accurate to the time period, according to some people, with lots more common versions being used uh, instead of the expected old fashioned ones. Uh, and then the things that are old fashioned, if you see the quote, it's kind of written in like an older form of English, it seems like, right? The one that really sticks out, which is using her H-E-R-R spelling, which is like what they use in this plate every time, uh, which Jesse read, that was never used by Drake for any reason, according to experts, right? However, Dr. Bolton, Dr. Herbert Bolton, Michael Bolton, did refute lots of these claims, saying that according to official accounts, the plaque was said to have been engraved with, quote, the day and year of our arrival, which would make sense if why they'd write the day they got there instead of the day they made the deal. And he also found that according to further tests that the brass was indeed determined to be ancient and that plant cells in the hole, like the little jagged hole near the bottom, were mineralized in a way that did hint at the plate, the plate possibly being out a long time in the open air uh, more than original tests made it seem. Uh, and then I and then I have a quote for Jesse to read here from a report about a further investigation into the lettering itself that was done. So that's right here. Each individual groove of the lettering was examined under the microscope at magnifications of 50 to 200 diameters because in the cause of fraud, there is always the chance of finding a hidden area which would disclose a fresh corrosion free surface. No indication or clue of artificial patination of any kind was found. Right. So this is starting to look 
a little better for Bolton. And he also found that Drake had, in fact, used the H-E-R-R spelling in a prospectus for lands, which he wrote, which refuted pretty much all the criticisms except for the one about the white banks and cliffs. Uh, just because that's just, they just aren't there. There's nothing you can't, there's nothing that can be done about that. But then something amazing happened. Apparently, a little after the story hit the news, uh, there was another guy who was a chauffeur called William Caldera who came forward saying that four years before this guy found the plate, he'd actually found the exact same plate near the place in Northern California, which is called Drake's Bay because it is believed to be the bay where Drake stopped. Right. Mm. So he says he found it there and then he took it thinking that he was going to be able to sell it because his boss uh, that he was driving for was like, that's rare. And so he was like, you know, keep it. But then he just decided, ah, fuck it, whatever. And he fucking ditched it. Uh, near Golden Gate Bridge, he just threw it out. Oh, he threw it away into the into the ocean near Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and that's exactly where Mr. Shin found it. So, at the end of that article in 1976, they're saying, you know what? Maybe it was the fucking real plate of Drake, and that the whole story actually does line up. Uh, huh. But that was 1976. Uh, so first of all, that's fucking crazy because I did not know that about Francis Drake. I did not know that he allegedly came to California and like chilled out for a little bit and basically bought America for England. I mean, idea me either. I had no idea what falls into the category of legend versus like reality. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, this is notes like from him and his crew. Like there is, this is a real, like the fact that he came is not really like disputed. Yeah, it's not really disputed. I had I just had no idea that that happened. It just Mm. seems so crazy. It's like almost like having to swallow that like the Egyptians came over here or something. You know what I mean? It seems crazy. That's fucking crazy. Like they would set up a colony protected by the U.S. government because it's so much. It's so much earlier than the 13 colonies. It's like hundreds of years before, like, you know, like the the people started to come this way from the east. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, yeah. so, so it's just nuts. Uh, but it's 2021 now. So I hopped on Wikipedia for like five seconds. And I can tell you that there is a little bit more to this story. Thanks to a 10 year effort by four researchers called Edward Von Der Porten, Amazing. Raymond Aker, Robert W. Allen and James M. Spitz, who published their own story in something called California History in 2002. Uh, They tell about this is amazing. Okay, this is absolutely incredible. There's a couple guys who are part of a fraternity of California history nerds called E. Clampus Vitus or ECV. uh, And they actually made the plate to be found by another member of the ECV, Dr. Herbert Bolton who was known among the group to be like a huge nerd about Francis Drake and the plate. He would even tell his students to go look for this plate. He was like obsessed with it and like wanted to find it. And so other people in the fucking group were like, let's just make it. And like, Like, let's fuck with them. Yeah, let's fuck with them. According to them, the plate was cut by a dock worker in San Francisco at a shipyard with a modern guillotine shear. Uh, and then a guy who was an appraiser, an art critic and an inventor named George Clark hammered the letters by hand with a simple cold chisel. And apparently on the back of the fucking plate, they actually painted ECV on the back in blacklight paint, like on the back of the actual plate. <laughs> so Amazing. Then, then apparently after they hit it in Drake's Bay, Something happened which they did not in, intend, which was that the guy, William Caldera, the fucking chauffeur guy, found it 
and took it and they had no idea what the fuck happened to it. And then he fucking threw it away. Uh, and then years later, Beryl Shin finds it and shows it to a friend of his who just happens to be a student at UC Berkeley. And who the fuck finds out about it other than the fucking crazy ass Drake nerd who's telling all his students to be on the lookout for the fucking Drake plate. That's so this so guy funny. suddenly out of nowhere thinks his fucking dreams are coming true. He makes all these announcements in the newspaper and he gets this guy chickering to fund him for twenty five hundred dollars to buy the plate. Which is uh, about in 2021 money. That's like forty five thousand dollars. And then Shin, the guy who found the plate uh, by the bridge, disappeared for a few days to, quote unquote, check with his uncle, whatever that means. And that caused Bolton's partner, who's financing it, to like panic and up his offer by a thousand more dollars just to see if it would help him get the plate. So now. He has paid sixty three thousand dollars in in twenty twenty one money Ridiculous. to get access to this plate. And now, because of all the media attention around them finding this, both of these guys who paid for this, their whole entire professional reputation is hinging on these plates being legit. So now the fucking original guys who just made this to mess with their buddy are like in like a fucking farcical situation where they're like, Fuck, if we come forward with this, we have like now ruined this man's life. We have like destroyed his livelihood if we come forward with this. So instead of just coming out and saying it, they tried to like hint to him that it was fake. First, they made a perfect (laughs) duplicate. They made a perfect duplicate of it and showed it to him. And they were like, we made this down at the docks with a guy. I made this. Look, it looks exactly the fucking same. (laughs) And he was like, I don't care. This is the real one. And that's the fake one. And they're like, fuck. So then then they they published $63,000 in getting them out is going to be hard. Dude. Yeah. And then they're like, shit. So what do we do next? They publish a fake letter from a made up company called Consolidated Brass and Novelty Company. And they offer a, quote, special line of brass plates guaranteed to make your hometown famous. So that was something that they published (laughs) to, like, hint to him that it was fake. Uh That's not real. And then literally when that didn't work, they were like, what the fuck can we do? So they published a literal pamphlet now called Ye Preposterous Book of Brass. It's like literally a list of all the things that are fucking wrong about this plate, all the errors. They're even in the thing. They're saying, look on the back. For the ECV written in fluorescent paint, uh, straight up say, quote, we should now reclaim the plate as the rightful property of our ancient order. But Bolton was like, fuck you guys. This thing is real. You can't convince me otherwise. Uh, And so now attention is so high on this that this guy, Robert Gordon Sproul, who is the head of UC Berkeley, forces Bolton. He's like, listen. You need to get this plate authenticated. We know this guy, Colin Fink. He's a professor here. He is a specialist in electrochemistry. But guess what fucking happens? This it's guy goes like, in, It's real. He fucking checks it out and he's like, that shit is fucking real. Okay. You know what this is doing for me? Huh. This whole story is telling me that even those people who are like, I've gotten it checked out. It's real. Yeah cannot even be trusted but we don't know we don't know if it's real still to this day people still aren't really 100 percent sure that a lot of the chemical tests black light to the back of it i have no idea there's no record of it anywhere what the fuck i know uh people still aren't because i don't think you can just get access to this thing because check this out there are pictures of this thing in textbooks there 
people have given facsimiles of this thing to Queen Elizabeth. Like this is what Drake made. No one can say for sure whether the plate is real or not anymore because because regardless of whether the information is good, both sides now have so much invested like ammo, like like a fucking expert was like, it's real. Like (laughs) both sides are just like, look, there's a fucking expert saying it's real. There's an expert saying it's fake. Like. I don't know. That's bonkers, man. I that's insane. Oh, my God. Just put a black light to the back of it. Like. I don't it's even know where it is that let me let's just let's just not assume that Francis Drake had black light paint in fifteen hundred and whatever. I don't think he did. I'm just going to take a I'm guess. I'm positive he did not. But this is also like <laughs> so one of those like, things where if you put a black light to it and you're invested in it being real, you're like, oh, and then it shatters I can't your find world. it. You know, like that kind of stuff. Or like yeah. maybe ECV stands for something else and it's a coincidence, but like honestly, or maybe they got the real plate and they put their maybe. mark on it to try and discredit it. You know, there's a million things it could be now. And, and, and it's just so funny to me that these guys started a prank and it just like maybe just got like way too out of hand and that that prank happened in the thirties. And now it's almost 100 years later and we're still like, what the fuck? Queen Elizabeth has copies of this thing that they made. Like, That's think insane. about that. That's insane. That's to insane. Me. Uh, strange stories, <laughs> comma, amazing facts. That's, that's one. <laughs> Thank you for bookending it with yeah. that right there. Really? Yeah. Mm, cherry on top. Yeah. Mwah, that's perfect. one of the stories. It's a uh, Maricino Chenny in my mouth. Yeah, cherry. Mar- yeah. Chenny. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. What? Ooh. I don't know who Maricino Chenny is. <laughs> Maricino Chenny <laughs> shoots you in the face, kisses you on the lips. Uh, mm. all right. This next story is called the slow train to Izmir. Okay. Uh, so here we go. This one's uh, kind of similar, kind of not. I kind of this is kind of like if other stuff that I've done is the Justice League. This is the Justice Society. That's what this episode is. For so, somebody who's not a DC fan, what's the difference? Uh, the X Men from the year 2020 and the X Men from the year 1963. <laughs> Got it. There you yeah. go. Actually works well. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so back in so back in 1958, an archaeologist called James Mellart. Mayart. It's M-E-L-L-A-A-R-T. So I'm going to say Mellart. That's what I'm going to say for the rest of this. Uh, was sitting on a train from Istanbul, Turkey to Izmir, where he suddenly realized that he was kind of idly staring at this young girl who's sitting across from him. He was like looking at her hand and she had a bracelet on. And he was like, what is, why is that bracelet? Like, why am I staring? Like, what is up with me? Why am I staring at this bracelet? Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And he suddenly realized, oh my God, that's like a thousands year old bracelet. And it looks like it's made of fucking gold. Like, that's why it looks weird. So he's like, hey, 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 hi, I'm Dr. Millard. I'm like, he's like an eminent uh, archaeologist in Turkey at this time. He's like on a dig in a coil. uh, What what is it called? Koyaluteki or whatever. Uh, co, co, it's like the big Turkey, like old ancient site. I, I don't know the name of it. It's not like a natural word for me to pronounce. I apologize. But he was like one of the head guys at that. And uh, he's like, hi, I'm this guy. Uh, who are you? How the fuck did you get this? Like, what the hell is going on? Why are you wearing this like priceless jewelry on this train? And she's like, hi, um, I have a collection. She's like, I have a collection of stuff hidden at my house. And he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, it's right. It's over. Like when we get off the train, if you want to come check it out, you can like come see the rest of it. And he's like, uh, fuck. Yes, I want to go see it. Uh, so he follows this chick and uh, he finds when she when he gets to her house, he finds people kind of like 
pulling out a priceless collection of artifacts from like this unassuming, just like chest of drawers. And he's sitting there just gobsmacked because what they are pulling out is literally stuff like to him and what he knows about with Turkish history to him is like on the level of like King Tut's tomb level artifacts. Jesus Christ. Like he's getting mind rocked by the stuff that's coming out of this chest of drawers. Uh, And the girl said that she was Greek and she said that the collection had been found during the Greek occupation after World War One and that it had come from a secret excavation at a small lakeside village in Greece called Dorak, I think, or in Turkey, maybe. I'm not sure where Dorak is. Uh, And strangely, uh, while they would not let him photograph it out of fear uh, of their own safety from like the government and people who might be interested in this collection of relics, they did let him stay over uh, for a couple of days until he was made able to like take very detailed notes, sketch everything, make rubbings of all the hieroglyphics, noting all the little details that he could see to like identify the, the, the items and stuff like that. Uh, and what he concluded was that these pieces were all over 4,500 years old and that they implied the existence of a warrior ruled seafaring city near Homer's Troy, which rivaled Homer's Troy in both wealth and influence enough so that the those that information would bring into question the way that we understand the politics of that era at the time. So a very earth shaking idea that there was this extra city there next to Troy, right? So that's what he's like dealing with. And he finishes up his work and he's finally done after a couple of days and he leaves in the middle of the night and he realizes that even though he knows that this girl's name is Anna Papastrati because she told him her, her name and he has her address as 217 Kazim Direct Street, he really didn't know anything else about her. He really only just took her word for it that that was the address because he wasn't really pay- he was so excited about the fact that he was like talking about this crazy priceless bracelet that he wasn't really like paying attention to the taxi ride. He wasn't really in a familiar part of town. So he was just kind of stressing out about that. And so that was the first mistake. And then the second mistake that he made though, uh, it was probably what damned him, which is, uh, since because he was worried that his wife who was, he had only been married to her for a couple of years. He was worried that she would be pissed at him and embarrassed. If it came out that he had like stayed in another woman's house for a few days. Uh, When he ended up taking the stuff that he made to the uh, British Institute of Archaeology in Ankara, which is where he worked, and he was like one of the head guys there, when he brought his stuff in and showed it to the other people there, he lied and said that he'd seen this stuff six years ago before he was married, but he was bringing it forward now because now he had the permission to do so from the people who owned it. So that's what he said. And it kind of fucked him because it made everything else that he said really hard to substantiate while also sticking to that story. Uh, So finally, in uh, 1959, uh, after the article about the stuff he saw finally was printed in the Illustrated London News, people are seeing these drawings uh, and stuff. And the word is like growing. The Turkish Department of Antiquities becomes super pissed immediately. And they begin an investigation because in their minds... This guy is like 
been sitting on a priceless national treasure of relics for six years that somebody found without telling them. And then he, instead of alerting the authorities, just let these people like walk off into the night and like maybe sell these fucking things or whatever they were going to do with them. So they fucking hate him now. Right. And it's just because he lied about like the timeline of this. Um, And this is where things start to get really bad for him because the authorities find out pretty quickly that Anna Papastrati does not exist. 217 Kazim Direct Street is like a fucking warehouse and it's not a private private residence. Um, and even though they couldn't really like pin Mellart with anything because there's no evidence of anything other than like his drawings of shit, the Turkish media has like a fucking field day with this guy saying he falsified the date of the Dorak excavation. People were saying that they'd seen him at the dig site where the relics came from in Dorak with the woman, like with a mysterious woman. Shit was getting out of hand. And even though he like basically proved that it was all fake news, it didn't matter because he was already banned from his uh, other big job that he was doing at this fucking site that I can't remember the name of. I bet you I bet you if 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 you Google like Turkey archaeology, it's like the number one thing it starts with a C. Somebody will know it. Um, but uh, yeah, he couldn't work there anymore. And he like lost all credibility and he continued to be kind of an archaeologist and eventually even got back into Turkey to be like a like labor, like an assistant on digs. But he never got to like be an archaeologist in Turkey again. And it's super crazy. And nobody ever figured out who the hell Anna Papastrati was or what happened to any of the treasure if it ever existed in the first place. But before we get to any modern explanation of what what may have really happened, here is the suggestion from Reader's Digest 1976. And Mathis, if you would be so kind. I'm curious about this. Yeah. If if you'd be uh, kind to read this, be so kind as to read this. There we go. This is from 1976. Yeah. Okay. One theory is that Melart was the bait in a cunning trap set by a smuggling gang who already had the Dorak treasure hidden away and ready for sale. Such a gang would know that the value of their loot on the world black market would be enormously increased once it was pronounced genuine by an unsuspecting expert of Melart's repute. The authoritative article in the Illustrated London News provided the stamp of authenticity that could be used by the smugglers. Were the pieces then quietly shipped away to secret buyers all over the world? If that is what really happened, then the truth about Anna and the vanishing fortune may have been locked away forever behind the doors of some of the world's wealthiest and most unscrupulous art dealers. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a super out there theory. And I think, honestly, like if you assume that the treasure is real, I don't think it's that crazy of a theory. Right. I don't quite understand, like, how they found him or how they orchestrated him finding a woman on a train or whatever. Or how that all happened or why they would need to take him somewhere and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But, uh, you know, other than that, not that bad. But I did go on Wikipedia in 2021 and find some more information that wasn't in the Reader's Digest. So I did find out that in 1958, after writing to her twice with no answer, trying to get permission from her to talk about this stuff with the media, Mellart did receive a letter from Anna Papastrati at the British Institute of Archaeology, where he was the deputy director. Uh, so here it is. Uh, here's that letter for Jesse to read. I'm going to drop that in the old uh, Zoom chat right here. You can read that. This is from 1018-1958, from Kazim Derek Kadesi. It's basically Kazim Direct Street 277. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Dear James, here is the letter you want so much. As the owner, I authorize you to publish your drawings of the Dorak objects. 
which you drew in our house. You always were more interested in these old things than in me. Well, there it is. Good luck and goodbye, love, Anna Popstrati. My man can't take a hint. Yeah. She wants him. It's true. Which is maybe, you know, if that's really from her, you know, that might explain why he was trying to lie about when he was there. Maybe he did get busy with Anna Papastrati. Who knows? Mm. Uh, however, after some investigation, it was found that the letter had more than a few similarities to uh, two letters written from the typewriter of Mellart's own secretary, who also just so happened to be his wife, Arlette. Uh, so here's another little quote from you, uh, for you to read, uh, about that, uh, for Mathis. And this is coming from an investigation <clears throat> by Susan Mazer at scoop.co.nz. I love it. New Zealand. All right. <clears throat> Most noticeable is the use of Roman cap I in letter dates instead of Arabic one, something just not done then or now outside Oxford or Cambridge scholarly circles. Damn. And sources close to the BIAA have revealed that the Anna letter was drafted and typed by the Mellarts on BIAA's Remington manual typewriter. Yeah. So not looking so good for Mellart at this point. No, Mellart's not looking too, too clean right now. Uh, However, other people have apparently connected the Anna Papastrati character with the U.S. base at Izmir or with CIA activity in the area centered around smuggling illegal art pieces out of Turkey for the art black market. And according to an account by a German scholar called Dora Jane Hamblin, this meant that Mellart was used uh, like he was used to verify high value findings from the Yortan culture and that the meeting on the train was intentionally arranged by government agents or the criminals that they were chasing. So maybe that lends some credence to the uh, theory from 1976. Uh, but obviously, both of these things are kind of circumstantial and Mellart passed away in 2012. Uh, but it's also interesting to note that in 2018, Mellart's son uh, and along with like a geo archaeologist or something uh, for his thesis, like published an account where he investigated his father's apartment. He found tools, half finished pieces, stuff that kind of altogether looked like maybe it was like a forgery workshop, including prototype murals and engravings. Uh, which Mellart had claimed to find on the dig that he was banned from in 1959 in the first place. So he's not looking hmm. too good. So, but, no, no, but nobody knows. Like this is all, you know, based on s small piece of evidence. I think the truth of whether or not those relics exist at all is very much still in question. And so I think the mystery is still alive today for this one. I'm fascinated by where they think these came from. Because I would love to know where that, where they're like, this is where we believe these are from. Because it's, they say it's from the village of Durak. Right. I don't know where like, that village is. I don't know exactly the ancient where it is. Oh, it's in Tarsus. It's in Turkey. Oh, it's Tarsus? So is it like Phrygian in design? We talked a little bit about Tarsus during Atlantis. Yeah, I think it's Yortan. Something where to do with Yortan people. Where is this city? She said... She said that it that it that she thinks that it was high value findings from the Yortan culture. Which seems to be kind of like a Turkish kind of Greek kind of zone. Yortan. Where the hell would they be? They're a little north of where uh of where Dorak is. But if I Google Yortan culture, early Bronze Age. 
like yeah it's a thing there's like jars and stuff who knows turkish huh. it's a turkish culture all i'm saying is phrygians are where most of the uh like big stories of of ancient greece are from where everyone ends up there and that's like right in the middle of it so I don't that's know, what that's, i'm saying like yeah i mean the real question is, is and the Gordian knot and all that stuff. Yeah. The real question is, is this shit real? Because I feel like we know this guy's know. kind of a, I know we know this guy's kind of a schemer, but like, is he scheming on some real artifacts or was he just pulling shit out of his ass to get famous is the real question. Uh, because, that's tough when that's anyone it's muddied up by somebody who's just not that trustworthy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was story two of strange strange what is it strange stories amazing <laughs> facts strange stories comma, comma, amazing, fa- amazing facts a great title of a book i can't believe that uh and i got one more for you guys today one more story this one's a little bit different than the other two not so much about archaeology but still a very like fun historical story this one is called casper hauser's secret past uh it was Whit monday the day after pentecost in 1828 nuremberg When out of nowhere, a strange young man in rough peasant's clothes and no older than 16 years old came stumbling up the road like a baby. Everyone who met him thought him to be drunk or mentally disabled in some way. But strangely, he was carrying a letter addressed to the captain of the 4th Squadron of the 6th Regiment of Cavalry in Nuremberg. And when he told the shoemaker who found him, uh, when when the shoemaker found him, he told him, I want to be a soldier as my father was. So the shoemaker took him straight to the captain. And I want to say this was 1828 in Nuremberg. And this is, I got to tell you the story that made me make this whole thing uh, into an episode because I was looking for stuff that reminded me of that smelly ass dude who ate everything uh, from last time I did a thing. (laughs) The French guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's really disgusting guy. So this was like a similar deal to that one. Just like this weird sort of story. And then everything, cause I found it in this reader's digest book that I had on my shelf and it just all spun out from there. Uh, so the shoemaker takes him to the captain of the fourth squadron, the sixth regiment of the cavalry. And the captain immediately takes him to the police station where he answered. I don't know to every single question that he was asked. <laughs> and people at the time were guessing that maybe he had a mental age of about three or four. Uh, but when they gave him a pencil and paper, he took it immediately and he wrote Casper Hauser down K A S P A R H A U S E R. And so after that, the captain kind of sent him to like something similar to like juvenile hall while he was like, I got to just figure out what to do with them. Let me read this letter. Uh, and so here's the letter. It's fucking weird. Uh, this is for Jesse to read. This is the letter that was with Casper Hauser or at least a selection from it. I don't know if it's the whole letter. Honored Captain, I sent you a boy who is anxious to serve his king in the army. He was left in my house on October 7th, 1812, and I am only a poor day laborer. I have ten children of my own, and I have enough to do to bring them up. I have not let him out of the house since 1812. If you do not want to keep him, you can kill him or hang him up the chimney. Damn. (laughs) Wow. So... And if you remember, this is 1828. So 1812 is 16 years, right? Uh, So that's a crazy time, amount of time to not be let out of the house. I don't know what this guy's deal is. I don't know why he decided to get rid of him in this way or whatever. But it was a weird enough story that the jailer at this place where Casper was, it's like a lodging home, almost like a hostel slash jail for young people. 
this guy took Casper out of there and into his own home to keep a better eye on him. And he began to notice some really strange things about Casper Hauser. First, for someone who is as old as he was and grown as he was, his feet were soft, 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 like a baby's feet, like really soft, which is super weird. Like he didn't even have shoes on most of the time, uh, which in 1828 was tough for a poor person to have very soft feet, right? Like if you're a poor person in 1828, you're getting fucked up by the world around you, period. Uh, he also spent most of his time smiling innocently with no other expression. And he stumbled around the house while walking like a baby trying to take his first steps is how it was described. He had no problem with anybody ripping off his clothes and scrubbing his dick or any of that shit. He never like really got sexually excited. The jailer's wife would like do that for him and he didn't react. He didn't really seem to tell the difference between men and women in any way, in any meaningful way. He didn't really act different towards them either. And he would get sick if he ate anything besides bread or water. Uh, and he could only talk in broken sentences. Uh, and all of this together kind of convinced the jailer that regardless of what was happening here with this guy, the dude was not faking his like mental situation and that there was something kind of mysterious that happened to him in his past. Uh, and if that wasn't strange enough, wait till you hear the info that they finally get out of this dude. Uh, when oh, they finally get right. him talking. So according to Casper, before getting to Nuremberg, he had only ever seen one human being in his entire life. He, and he doesn't know who mm. it was. He said that for as long as he could remember, he had lived in a six foot by four foot cell that was only five feet high and that he had always sat or laid down on a straw bed in his shirt and leather trousers. And that's all he did all the time. He said that every morning when he woke up, there would be a jug of water and a hunk of bread in his cell for him. And uh, from time to time, when he drink the water, the water would taste more bitter than normal and it would make him fall asleep. And on those days, if he fell asleep after he woke up, his clothes would be clean and he would have trim nails and a haircut. So that's like been his life. Uh, and then one day. Weird. Yeah. And then one day he says a man came and taught him to write down the name Casper Hauser and taught him to say, I want to be a soldier as my father was, and then carried him on his back out into the world, and the light and the air from the outside world made Casper pass out. And then when he woke up, he was alone on the road to Nuremberg where everybody found him. So that was... Imagine that Skyrim meme. I know, right? Wake up. (laughs) Exactly. Hello. Uh, (laughs) But yeah. You're finally awake. So that was the like newspaper story that basically exploded all over Europe, Uh, pictures of him were published like drawings of him and word got out and suddenly everyone was saying that he was like a dead ringer for the grand ducal family of Baden Uh, and that around the time that he was born that family had been hit with the sudden death of two babies in the direct line of succession Uh, and uh, shortly after that became the common theory about who Casper Hauser was the current grand duke died which creates the mechanism of succession to happen, right? So the the current Grand Duke dies. And in 1830, the English Earl of Stanhope, who just so happens to be really good friends with the guy who is now the successor to that Duke, applies for and becomes the guardian of Caspar Hauser and immediately proclaims him to be Hungarian and in no way connected to the House of Baden and also pressures the media to admit that they had always thought that Caspar had been an imposter. Uh, Hmm. However... A German legal scholar called Johann Anselm Ritter von Feuerbach published a dissenting opinion in like a pamphlet or something stating that, quote, the crime against Casper's liberty was not prompted by hatred or revenge, 
solely by selfish interest. Casper Hauser is the legitimate son of royal parents and was put out of the way to open the succession to other heirs. Uh, and then Van Feuerbach died suddenly in 1833, and no proof is ever found of it. But the heavy rumor around town is that he found proof behind Casper's lineage and then was poisoned immediately after that. Uh, but then later that same year, in 1833, according to his own account of the events, Casper was lured by some stranger saying that if he followed him to the Ansbach court garden, he has a bag for him that has the proof in it that proves that he's a royal child. Uh, and he goes and he meets the guy there and the guy stabs him directly in the heart. And, Jesus Christ. And Casper uh, is able to get home. He's able to stumble home with the knife in his chest, but he dies three days later after telling his story. And apparently the Grand Duchess Stephanie of Botten cried hard, bitter tears when she heard of his death, because since her husband Carl had been able, unable to produce an heir uh, after they lost their kids, the succession would now pass to the Countess of Hawksburg's children. And according to Reader's Digest 1976, there was a story that the Countess of Hochberg, Hochberg was able to somehow switch out Stephanie's first baby with a dead peasant child, possibly while she was disguised as a ghost known as the White Lady, which is a crazy detail. La Llorona. Uh, and sending the true heir away with a major Hennenhofer, who may have even gone on the record confirming that that happened, though no one can find that document today because when Hennenhofer died, all his personal papers were destroyed and burned. Uh, of course they were. Though the actions of the Earl of Stanhope and Casper's murder seem to confirm the idea pretty hard that maybe there was some mechanism in place to keep him out of the royal succession. Yeah, I mean, even if they don't outright say it, they went through some hoops to keep this man out of the way and just straight up that's, murder that's what, his ass. That's what it seems like. Supposedly, we don't, this is all like... 1976, exactly. <laughs> oh, this is, this is like hearsay and like yeah. what? Like there's... I look, I know you're about to give us the 2021 version of this. Yeah. But the entire time you're talking, I can't help but think about like a large leap in logic that I obviously at the time they had no clue about. Right. But I feel like 1776 would had to have known or not 1776, 1976. Yeah. Would have to. If you're going to spend 12 years in a dark room. Yeah. You're getting rickets. I don't care. Yeah. I don't know if anyone listening knows what Ricketts is, but you're you're literally your lack of vitamin D will cause your bro bones to go brittle. The minute he stepped out of there, he would like collapse and fall. He would apart. turn into Jack Skellington, and he would yeah, just. There's no. Like, <laughs> that's a huge like problem with this story, which makes me then question everything else this guy's saying. And you hmm. and you very much should, because here is what I got from Wikipedia in twenty. Are we about to find out that this is like all BS? Because I'm well, ready for it. Not okay. So first of all, let's talk about Anselm von Feuerbach, the guy who was like defending him in this pamphlet and saying that he really was the the heir. Apparently, a note was found in his legacy after his death, saying, "Quote: Casper Hauser is a smart, scheming codger, a rogue, a good for nothing that ought to be killed." Which doesn't seem like what you'd say about someone who you think is the lost heir to the House of Baden, but right. it is also unclear whether or not Casper Hauser ever knew that Feuerbach ever felt this way about him. So who knows? Uh, but secondly, let's talk about the Earl of Stanhope again. Uh, the guy who seemed to have swooped in and kind of eliminated any question that this guy was the heir, right? Uh, by becoming this guy's ward. And I will say Earl of Stanhope paid for Casper Hauser's lodging in life until he died. 
uh, until Casper was killed. However, apparently at the time of his death, Hauser was not under his direct care anymore for almost a year because how uh, because the Earl of Stanhope had given Hauser over to a schoolmaster called Johann George Meyer to take care of instead, even though he kept paying for everything for him only because he had given up hope that Hauser really was who he said he was, because apparently the reason that Stanhope thought that Hauser was Hungarian in the first place was because he saw that Hauser had been seemingly remembering Hungarian words and was going on and on for a while about saying that because this guy was like muttering all the time and just saying weird shit just to give you an idea of how Casper Hauser was. He was just yeah. saying weird stuff all the time. And he was saying that the Hungarian <clears throat> countess was his mother and that he hmm. was recognizing Hungarian words. So this dude, the Earl of Stanhope spends all this money, sends him to Hungary twice to try and jog his memory, uh, which is not the same as going to Hungary today in in 1828 it's a lot harder to get up and go to hungary uh only for him to completely fail at recognizing anyone anything nobody in hungary is like that guy's hungarian nobody believes that he's hungarian stand honestly yeah if this man is a is a con artist he's kind of genius because all he's doing is like you said he's muttering phrases he's throwing things out there yeah he's just kind of like letting words float and whoever hooks onto him like a medium in nowadays yes. right who just kind of to an audience Starts throwing vague things. Whatever they hook onto, boom, that's the direction he goes. Yes, exactly. So after that happens, Stanhope completely changes his tune. Hauser never leaves Stanhope alone about the promise that he made to send him to England to see if anything was going to happen there. That's like all Hauser really wanted from Stanhope anymore. Stanhope got to the point where he actually published a book with all his evidence against Hauser, uh, saying that it was, quote, his duty openly to confess that he had been deceived. So that doesn't look too good either. No. However, there have been some DNA tests uh, since 1976. Let's check out the results of those. In 1996, there was a German magazine called Der Spiegel, which reported that blood from some of Hauser's underwear could not have come from a hereditary prince of Baden, uh, which doesn't look too good for Casper. However, Six years later, in 2002, there was another test of six separate other samples of Casper Hauser's hair and his belongings, uh, all of which were tested and proved to be identical DNA, uh, even though they were all from different sources. But they did not match the sample that went in in 1996, which cast doubt on that 1996 sample being legit in the first place. Mm. And in this test... He was considered a possible link to Stephanie de Beauharnais's line. However, it wasn't an identical match. And though that could be explained uh, via a reasonable level of mutation, a high similarity, if you know enough about this type of DNA testing, a high similarity still doesn't count as 100% proof as lots of people in Germany probably fall into the category of people who could be an heir if you consider this level of deviation. So I guess mm. the truth is still kind of out there. Was Casper Hauser a genius, bizarre con man? Was he some kind of weird royal Gendry ass heir that just got bopped out of nowhere by something strange or whatever? Either way, doesn't matter. Still just ends up as strange stories, comma, amazing <laughs> facts. Yeah. <laughs> I, so. Honestly, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, I want to go look up more about this story. I didn't find anything, but I did find something very similar, which I think is hilarious. So 
In 2011, so 10 years ago, yeah, a boy named Ray uh, in Germany came out of the woods and said that he had lived alone in the forest for at least five years. What? And yeah. Okay. And uh, they said like he was in good health. He spoke English and German. He claimed not to know who he was, where he came from. He was like raised in the woods like a feral child. And then, of course, it was eventually discovered that Ray was actually a 21-year-old Dutchman who got bored with his office job and was like, screw it. This is this is what I'm going to do. And so he just decided to play a hoax on everyone by claiming to be a feral kid. He just became like a cuckoo bird. I just no. I think he just like was tired of the day to day grind and like decided to do a thing. And he was going to say that he was like a feral kid living out, which is crazy because at least now. You could just like ID people a lot. Even 2011, you could just ID people way easier. So it was very quickly. They figured it out. But like he was like, I'm from the woods. So people still do that stuff today. Like, 1960s, 70s, it was way easier to do that kind of crazy shit because there wasn't any internet. No, no internet, easy way yeah. to communicate. Yeah. No cell phones. You could literally just disappear and start fresh. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things where, unfortunately for Hauser, a lot of what he said or did seems like lies, which makes all of it potentially a lie, which kind of ruins the fun. You know what I mean? Like, I there's mean, a lot of you, fun to the story, but it's like... Yeah. Or it's all there's, a version, there's a version of the story where he's like a clueless guy who just bounces around like a pinball between all these like Game of Thrones ass people. And then there's another version of the story where he's like this like weird ass guy who got obsessed with the fact that people thought this about him probably after like a weird day of acting weird. And then he just like stuck with it and tried to get as many free things as he could out of it. Well, apparently you know? it was very popular because on they were saying that. You know, in Europe during this time, during the 1800s, it was like huge. And yeah. then also in America it was huge. And I guess I'd be willing to. When did Man in the Iron Mask come out? Oh, my God. When did Leonardo that, DiCaprio's finest role? You know what? Man that is a great movie. Iron, 1998. No, not the movie. The book. <laughs> oh, OK. The All Dumas right. well, that's book. Different. Six, I like seven. Way before. Way before. Like, I think like 16. Alexandre Dumas. 1850. That's El Hombre de la Mascara de Ero. Oh, so here's the thing. Looking? Yeah, it's after for sure. The book. Yeah. yeah. So this is like, this is in the ethos of yeah. like a mysterious person locked away. And it's like, is the ruler of all of Paris. Like that is in the, the cultural ethos. Like people want that. So. Yeah, I wonder if that played a role in it or if it was based off of the idea. Fascinating stuff. I love that. That's cool. Yeah, that story, man, you had me for a minute that it might be actually true. But even if the, if he's a con man, that's equally as impressive because, man, he just played the audience like a fiddle. It's not 100 percent clear. You know, that's right. why it's so interesting. Like all these stories, like there's like a couple ways they could all shake out and each of them are all kind of strange and not necessarily exactly what anyone says is happening. Like no one involved in the story is really telling the truth hundred percent. Right. Because even though this guy's like said all this stuff about him and that he lost faith in him and sent him to Hungary and all this stuff, like he's still friends with the fucking guy who succeeded based on the fact that this guy doesn't exist. Do you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. still incentive for him to lie about all of that. So it's just, it's, it's tough. He got stabbed in the heart. People were saying that maybe he did it to himself, but like, and then he, that, that he fucked up by just like stabbing himself too hard. 
But <laughs> if that's how it went down, can you imagine how poetic a death that is for the guy who pretended to be a guy for so long? And like, man, talk about dedication to, to stab yourself near or at the heart level. Man, that takes some guts. Yeah. Good for him for going through with it. Thanks for bringing us those stories. Can today, I just, Alex. before we wrap up, <laughs> yeah, shout yeah. out to Alexandre Dumont for just nailing it. Can we talk about 1844, Three Musketeers, right? 1846, <laughs> Count of Monte Cristo. Get out oh. of here. That's classic. Two and years right later, that man in the Iron Man, like, dude, is killing it. How He's old, how old was he? Knockout after how another. old was he when he did this? He was born in 1802. So oh my he is God. in his 40s when he's dropping. Not like, even. Like barely. Yeah. yeah. God Man damn. is killing it. Now, I, listen, um, that gives me hope because we're we're like just about to be there. We can still work, be creating our greatest works let right now. Let me just now tell you right it. now, going through a list of his greatest works, the, the things that are of him. There is nothing before 1841. So this man rolling up. In his late 30s, as like, I guess I'm writing now. In the 1800s. Killing it. Just wrote like the most important stories ever. And then he's just out. I hope he was a rock star. I hope he walked on the streets in that time and people were like wanting autographs and knew who he was. And he just got all the attention. Most likely, probably just like an awful racist. About this man. Probably, unfortunately. This this is, look, I'm going to send you guys one picture. If anyone wants to Google Alexander Dumas, here you got to, this is just for my boys. Look at this man. He would be on this podcast. He would be a fourth <laughs> member of this podcast. I, dude, I, look at this dude. This guy gets uh, to be in. If I, if I die, bring him in. Yeah, he gets to get your, he gets to replace. Or if he wants to possess your body for an episode, I'm in. Wow, I had no idea he was Haitian. That's so cool. Yeah, dude. The guy looks amazing. I love this. Man, that's the, that's such a good ass picture. Yeah, <laughs> I love right? that picture All so much. Man, pictures. He, he lived pretty long, too. He was like 70 years old. He was almost 70 before he died. Mm-hmm. Damn, for the 1800s, that's pretty And he was a gourmand? Come on. Yeah, that's oh, what I'm saying. It is Alex. He finished it, it, his he, he finished his Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine weeks before he died. God bless. You know that was like I must finish this before I expire. It's not <laughs> it says in the Wikipedia though it says it is not thought very reliable because it relies on Dumas's opinions rather than fact. Which if you read it's it again, it's thing. like it be it relies on dumbass's opinions rather than fact, which is just so good. Look, <laughs> he is a man. I, like I said, he fits this podcast. He has a great last name. He has the look. All I'm saying is shout out to my boy. Rip dog. <laughs> Thanks Cranking for everything. Out those bangers. Yeah, right. Oh, my <laughs> God. I wish someone would look up a picture of me in the future and be like, this dude would look great on our space cast. <laughs> I'll, dude, I'll, I'll give day. up my spot for Alexander Dumas. There can't be two Alexes on the fucking pod. <laughs> you can get there, though. I'm cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down to have him on. Alex, thank you for, so much for bringing those wonderful stories to the podcast. Hell yeah. I man. really enjoyed all three of Keep them. Keep it They're real great. weird. Strange stories, comma, amazing facts. What is it? Amazing is that right? Facts. Yeah, that's about right. If you guys uh, enjoyed everything that you did here and you want to support us directly, head over to patreon.com slash Illuminati pod. You can get all the posters that we've uh, put up every month. And last month's October was a, a Chiluminati themed Ouija board. And she also provided both the planchette and the board separately as art. So if you wanted to print them out and put them on your own board, you can do so. Uh, it's really, really sick. And a bunch of other stuff that's over there, including mini sods, which we're going to go do right now. So thank you guys so much for listening. So good. Well, yeah, we got some good stuff. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Anyway. 
my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out of here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky.